that I enjoyed, uh, typing, <laughs> PE, and history. And uh, he taught us U.S. history, and I loved third period. And I knew once I got to third period, the day was good, uh, because day was half over, and my favorite class was on its way. So I just have a keen interest in, uh, in history, U.S., and the world. And one thing that stands out is, if you study history, is there's a lot of suffering that goes on in the world that we don't experience as people living in this country. I mean, we live in a land of plenty. I mean, so much so. We have no idea what it means to go without. Now, I read of famines <clears throat> in Russia where over 20 million people died. I read of famines in China where over 40 million in North Korea, there was a famine where a million people died in the span of two years. South Africa, two million people died. I had a chance to teach at an institute in Penza, Russia, 2001. And they had just come out of their great recession for them under communist rule. And I was talking to the believers there, and they were telling me how there were literally days where there was no food in the whole city. Literally, there was no food in the whole city. And they would literally go hungry without food for days. Uh, and they would pray. You know, we pray and think, what kind of food do we want? Right? So last night, I had dinner, and then I had post-dinner, right? As I often do. Um, so Serena was out. She was driving home. At 9 o'clock, she called me, and James, do you want me to pick up something? By God's grace, I said, no, it's okay. I'm going to have cereal just to kind of watch myself a little bit, self-control a little bit. But oftentimes for me, my question is not, am I going to eat? The question is, what am I going to eat? For these believers in Russia, it was, will I eat? Uh, will I have some food for myself and my family? That is the reality, believe it or not, for most of the world today. In most parts of the world, there is a widespread shortage of food. But there is a certain kind of shortage, certain kind of famine that we are not immune to. <coughs> There's a famine in our country as well. And that famine is not a famine of water or, or bread or food. It's a famine of hearing God's word. And that affects our country, our community. And by the end of the message, I hope to convince you that it has affected you as well. The reason for your ill health spiritually, the reason for your weakness, your, your doubting faints, uh, the reason for the, the fragility of your Christian faith could very well be because um, you've been lacking the nourishing gospel food for your soul, for your heart. Amos 8 um, 11 and 12, the Old Testament prophet, he predicted this. He said, the days are coming when I will send a famine on the land. <clears throat> Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord will never disappear from the face of this earth until Christ returns. But the famine is in the hearing of the word of the Lord. There will come a time when people will no longer preach or proclaim or speak the word of God. People will wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro. They will seek to, in the context, hear the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Walter Kaiser is among many who have declared that this spiritual famine is now here and has been here for some time, he said, the famine of the word continues in massive proportions in most places in North America. That is why Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones stated the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it is the greatest need in the world also, this famine is widespread. This need for the word of God to be proclaimed is an urgent need for the church and for this world. And Paul understood this. Paul understood 
the importance, the primacy of proclaiming God's truth. And so as his days on earth are coming to a close, as his already being poured out as a drink offering, he is passing the baton of ministry to his dear son in the faith, Timothy. And as he concludes his last letter, here we are in the last words of this dear apostle. We're in chapter 4, the last chapter of, of his ministry. He considers his life done. He considers his fight over. He considers the race done with. He entrusts to Timothy not just the gospel, but he entrusts to Timothy the stewardship of ministering the gospel. It's not here is the gospel for you, but Timothy, it's not for you to just have it to hold. I entrust to you the delivery, the advancement, the proclamation of the gospel. This stewardship is given to you as well. So with a great tone of solemnity and authority, Paul writes, almost as a military commander, five successive aorist imperative verbs, five successive commands he gives to Timothy for him to discharge as a minister of Jesus Christ. And we find those five commands in verses 1 and 2. Now, before we get into uh, these two verses, uh, a moment of pause just to reflect on last few weeks' uh, studies in chapter 3. <coughs> a few weeks ago, we studied chapter 3, verse 15, and Paul there was pointing to Timothy's salvation. Uh, you are acquainted from childhood with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So he points to how because of Timothy's faith in Christ Jesus, he obtained salvation. In verse 16 and 17, we studied this last Sunday, we, Paul spoke about how the Word of God is breathed out by God. It's, it's, it's literally inspired, spoke out by God. It's profitable reproof for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, competent, equipped for every good work. And we spoke last week how the Word of God, the primary use of God's Word is not for others. It's not for your spouse. It's not for the world. It's not for the liberals or, or conservatives. It's not for uh, sinners or legalists. The primary use for the Word of God as a Christian is for ourselves. So that the man of God, the, the, the man who is studying the Word of God, the man who is peering into its truths, so that he might be transformed. He might be a vessel for honor, set apart for God's work, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. It's for himself. So the greatest need in our lives, in our families, in our church is uh, my holiness and your holiness. And what God is, God's intent is for our sanctification. And as we have our idols exposed, and uh, interestingly enough, this week was a, a week of my idols being exposed um, and having it being mortified. That is God's primary desire for us. And out of the overflow of that, we minister to others. And so part three, the, the third stage or third, third step is ministries, the stewardship of ministry. So we see here salvation, sanctification, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, stewardship of ministry. Uh, this is always this way. Ezra 7.10. Ezra studied the law of the Lord. And then what? He practiced it. And then he taught it. He studied. He practiced. And then he taught. Paul tells Timothy, you're saved. You're sanctified. Now go preach. But for too many of us... <coughs> We skip that second part. We don't take that second stage very seriously. We are so high-minded. We have delusions of grandeur. We have such lofty thoughts of ourselves. We're so blinded by our pride that we just think we need a little bit of sanctification, a little bit of maturity, a little bit of grace from God, then we're fine, and we jump in with both feet to do ministry. 
We think just a few months will do. A few months of growing, and now I want to be a leader. I want to teach. I want to have people follow me. Um, John Newton understood this, and he wrote to a wrote a letter to a young minister. And I'm going to post this on my next pastor's corner. I need material for my website on our church website. Uh, we have so much to so much uh, ahead of us. I'm just going to read this last sentence. But I'm going to post this whole thing for your benefit on our website. He's speaking to this young pastor friend who's very eloquent, very charismatic, very able with the word and ministry. And he talks about how ability and ministry and youthfulness is a deadly combination. It's like a spark with, uh, with uh, gasoline. Only thing that results is explosion. And then he concludes, Beware, my friend, of mistaking the ready exercise of gifts for the exercise of grace. Beware, my friend, of mistaking the ready exercise of gifts for the exercise of grace. And I have found this true for many young men and women, and I found this true for myself, that we have often mistook gifts for grace. But for a lot of us, it's not that we're godly, we're not sanctified, we're mature, we understand God's grace and we live according to it. For a lot of us, it just means by grace we're smart. God has given us intelligence where we're able to regurgitate information from the scriptures. We're able to listen to sermons and read books and listen to, uh, go to conferences and just spew out what we have heard. And we have such fear of man in our hearts, we know exactly how to share the right things to, at the church so that we would seem and appear mature in the sight of, sight of others. It just means that we're just disciplined. Our parents, with, with using fear and shame and guilt and every manipulative tactics that are, that are in the world, <coughs> trained us from infancy, not for wisdom to salvation, but trained us for discipline to study and to work hard. And that just translates to the Christian ministry, the Christian world. Uh, it just means uh, we have uh, a lot of selfish ambition. We have this personal drivenness. And it comes out at work. It comes out in sports. It comes out in relationships. And it just comes out in the church, in ministry, where our drivenness tacks on to ministry and we skip part two and we want to be leaders and teachers of the word. And uh, we have mistaken gifts for grace. And it causes a lot of immature people, a lot of people who are unfit uh, to serve. And they do a lot of harm to themselves and a lot of harm to, them, to others. A lot of harm to themselves because, and we've talked about this a lot in our leadership, we put unwarranted pressure on people. Uh, by having high views of them spiritually. It's kind of like, only Mr. can come up with is uh, Kwame Brown, right? <laughs> so who is Kwame Brown? He's a seven foot one basketball player who's actually pretty good. He's so good that he can play for the NBA and get paid millions of dollars. But what happened was they thought he was the number one draft pick. So what team was this that drafted him? Wizards. No, not Wizards. Jordan's team. Well, Wizards. That's right. So Michael Jordan drafted a number one pick. Right? Number one. So he comes in with this pressure of being the number one pick. And he just right, chokes. He just, <laughs> he just struggles because of the pressure. If he came in as the 35th pick, people would be like, wow, this guy's great. Right? For a second round pick, this guy's awesome. He's a starting center. Right? Pretty good numbers. But he comes with a number one pick, and with that pressure, he struggles. I think a lot of us, maybe a lot of you, because of that view of yourself and the view that others put of you, because of your giftedness, because of your discipline, your ability, it put too high a pressure on you, and you yourself know, wow, I'm not, you know, I'm not John Newton, you know, I'm not, I'm not this person. People say that I am, but I know, and you struggle you fail, and you lose yourself uh, through it. 
or maybe the worst, the worst of the two possibilities is you start to believe that you are godly because of your giftedness. And this is worse. This is, you start to really believe the hype, believe the press that you are godly because you just know how to spew out information. Right? You just know how to look godly and do the right things. And so you become this uh, leader and a part of my language, but I know of no other way to express this kind of person, but you become a leader who is a jerk. And I have known leaders like this. Right? They're leadership, and they think they're like, and so, you know, and so they're, they're jerks. And you li- look at their life and the gaps, and there's so much lacking in terms of their attitudes, in terms of their pa- lack of patience, in terms of how easily they get frustrated at people, how easily they get angry at people, how easily they get angry at their spouse or their children, how they are lacking gentleness and kindness, where they use the Bible to just hurt others. They use the Bible to just slam people. Uh, there's a lack of empathy, a lack of confession of sin, a vulnerability of their hearts, and definitely a lack of humility. So Paul put this in order for us for us to see that uh, we can't bypass the second step. Each of us, we need to dig a well in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3 here. And we need to pitch a tent, set a fire, and camp here for a while as Christians. And let God do the work of, of molding us and transforming us and and exposing our idols of the heart, and mortifying with the gospel before we presume to be teachers, James 3.1. We presume to be teachers of the word, <coughs> even to ourselves or to others, or right, in chapter 4. So that's the order. With that in mind, let's go to chapter 4, verse 1. Now, verse 1 is intense. Paul, you know, he wants to crack it up. He's going to go out with a bang as he ends his life. He charges Timothy and he gives a a five-fold emphasis to his charge to Timothy. Five-fold emphasis as he commands Timothy. The first is, I charge you. And it's a deponent verb. What does it mean? It has an active verb that looks like a middle voice, meaning Paul is saying, I myself am charging you. That's redundant. Of course, Paul, it's you charging me. Who else is charging me? You're the one writing this letter. But Paul wants to emphasize his apostolic authority. I know I'm your father in Christ, and you know I'm your friend, and we do ministry together, but I am charging you personally as an apostle of Christ to do this. I myself have charged, I'm charging you. And then he brings in the presence of God. Literally, <coughs> in the Greek, it's before the face of God. And throughout the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.21, 6.13, and here again in 4.1, every time Paul brings in this ministry of the Word, he brings in how we do this ministry of the Word before God's face. Before his very presence, literally in the Greek, the lexical meaning is before his eye. We are preaching, we are teaching, we are delivering God's truth before God's eye. He's impressing this so that we would preach not to please man, but to please God. We would preach with no fear of man in our hearts, but the fear of the one who is invisible but through eyes of faith who is clearly visible. And it is in, in view of Him we are preaching God's Word. The third is we are preaching before Christ as well, who is to judge the living and the dead. So why, why does He bring this out? Because uh, you know, the Jesus of the Gospels is not the Jesus of the Revelation. There's really... A, five Gospels, five accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and also Revelation, because Revelation is an account of Jesus' life and ministry and work. 
In the first four Gospels, the second person, the Trinity, comes in humility and meekness, gentleness, lowly as a lamb. He comes riding on a donkey, humble, right? caring, with a tender heart. But in his second coming, he doesn't come riding on a donkey. How does he come? He comes riding on a white horse with a sword. He comes with eyes flaming with fire. He comes with authority and power and glory and might. So much so, the beloved apostle John, who, who knew Jesus personally and intimately at the Passover feast, at the communion table, he rested on Jesus' bosom. And yet when John saw the risen Lord, what did he do? He fell on his face as a dead man because he was so terrified by seeing the risen Lord. That's how he is coming. So we preach the word in presence of not this timid, not, not timid, gentle, humble, lowly Christ. We preach the word in view of the risen, glorified Savior who is, to, who is coming to judge, right? Who is to judge all mankind, living and the dead. Fourthly, <coughs> in view is appearing. This word uh, connotes uh, the, 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 the imminence of Christ, the urgency where he can come right now. He can come in the middle of his message. Timothy, understand, during your sermon, while you're talking about Kwame Brown, he's going to come, right? So be mindful of that, right? Make sure you use illustrations to assist your sermon. That was the end of itself. With that heart, preach the word and finally in view of his kingdom. His kingdom is coming as well. The king is coming. The kingdom order is coming. New authority, new economy, new dispensation, new era. So in view of all this, right, it's intense. Paul says, I charge you. Preach the word. Keruksa tan lagan. Preach the word. There are five verbs, imperative commands. This is the first one. Preach is from Keruksa, which is means to herald, to proclaim publicly. There was a king's herald who would take the king's edicts, his decisions, and go to the public market square, and he would declare it. He would proclaim it with a loud voice. And he would say, Thus saith the king. And now, everybody vote on it. Let's vote on this bill, and let's see if it passes or not. No, that's not what happened. There was no voting. There was no brokering and dealing and, and posturing between parties. No, it was the, the declaration of the king. And it was reality. It was truth. It was the law. So the, the call given to Timothy and to all preachers of the word is to go and declare it. Don't throw it out there to see if it sticks. Don't throw it out there hoping people will like it. Don't throw it out there, like hoping that uh, people will accept it. You declare God's word as it is the truth. Tan Lagan. What do you preach? The word. Now, there are two interpretations of what this means. And the rest of my, our sermon is, uh, is concerning these two interpretations. This is where I've changed. This is where I think we have changed. The majority view is, Tan Lagan is the Word of God, the Bible. Uh, the 66 books <clears throat> of the Old and New Testament. The mandate given to Timothy and to preachers and pastors and to every Christian <coughs> is to proclaim the Scriptures, proclaim the Bible. That's the first view. And I held that view for most of my ministry, and I, that was my goal in ministry, to fulfill this mandate. The second view, second interpretation is that the word is you are to preach the message of the Bible. Particularly preach the Bible through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel. That is what Paul is saying. This is not a call to a certain method of preaching. It's not saying preach expositionally. 
or topically or narratively. It has nothing to do with about style of ministry. We're talking about, is it the word in terms of the Bible or is it the word in terms of the gospel? Jesus Christ. How we are justified through faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. I believe in the latter for these reasons. First of all, that was the first message proclaimed by Jesus Christ. When Jesus began his ministry, his preaching was, Mark 1.14, he came preaching the gospel of God, the good news of God, the good tidings, the good declaration of God. In Matthew 9.35, Jesus went through all the villages and cities, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Luke 4, 43 and 44. He would not stay in one city. He kept traveling from one city to another and he told his disciples, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. Luke 8, 1. He continued proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God throughout Israel. That was the core of his ministry, of proclaiming uh, God's favor, the inauguration of the new covenant, where God accepts man not by their works, for it is impossible, but God accepts man through the gift, the ransom, the sacrifice of God's only Son. Post-resurrection, when he appeared to disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, he opened the scriptures and he showed them the law and the prophets and the Psalms. <coughs> he interpreted to them all, Luke 24, 27, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And then he said to them in verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he showed them how he was, he was, he is the center of the Old, Old Testament. That the main message of the Pentateuch is Jesus Christ. The main message of the prophets is Jesus Christ. The main message of the Psalms, the poetry literature, is Jesus Christ. So much so, in Mark 16, Verse 15, his commission to the disciples was, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. Proclaim the gospel to all creation. Proclaim the cross. Proclaim me. Proclaim Jesus. Proclaim um, the grace of God. That's to be the dominant focus of the apostles' message. Stephen Lawson wrote this in his book, Famine in the Land. The title of that section is called Riveted on Jesus Christ. Steve Lawson wrote, The chief subject of the apostles' teaching ministry was the works and works of Jesus Christ. They did not proclaim the law. They did not proclaim uh, rules and regulations. They did not proclaim a way to earn God's favor. What they proclaimed was Jesus Christ, his works and his words. For more than three years, they had been eyewitnesses of his perfect life, continues Pastor Lawson, and keen students of his prolific teaching. Therefore, their apostolic teaching focused on the Lord. They focused on his life, his deity, his discourses, his promises, his invitations, his death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement, the words and works of Jesus form the burden of the apostles' message. So, and Peter, after Pentecost in Acts 2, got up and spoke to the very people who murdered Jesus. What did he preach? What did he declare? He declared the gospel. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost 
as summarized in Acts 2, 14 through 36, was a concise, comprehensive presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ that outlined his life, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, and exaltation. That was the message of the apostles and the early church, the first church in Jerusalem in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was that? What was distinctive about the apostles' teaching from the Jews was that they taught salvation through faith by grace. That was what they were devoting themselves to. They were leaving the law behind, who was a tutor leading them to Christ. And now they were throwing themselves at the feet of the apostles' didaskalia, which is the gospel. We see this in uh, the apostles Paul's life, where he was an apostle for the gospel to the Gentiles, he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me, may I be cursed. He said in Acts 20, 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the task given to me. What is that task? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And at the end of the book of Acts, we see Paul in his first imprisonment in Rome, in house arrest. And what is he doing in Acts 28, 23? He is receiving all the visitors that are coming to him. Even those who are in the houses of Caesar that are coming to him. He's inviting them in, and he's teaching them the gospel. He expounded to them, says, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus Christ, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. So he was defending and expounding upon Jesus from the Old Testament, the gospel to all who would hear. I mean, he summarizes uh, his um, heart, his method of ministry in 1 Corinthians 2, 1, and 1 through 5. He said, when I came to you, I did not come with lofty speech or wisdom, or nor with demonstration of power. For in the, in the Corinthians, there was a merging of two groups, Jews and Gentiles. And Jews wanted power. Jews wanted to see miracles. And the Gentiles, they wanted wisdom. They, want, they wanted eloquence. They wanted philosophy. And Paul said, when I came to you, I vowed, I resolved myself not to cater to you by performing miracles for the Jews or speaking eloquence to the Greeks, although I could have. I'm a learned man. I could argue, wax eloquent in philosophy with the best of them. Or I'm an apostle, and with the gifts and the authority given to me, I could have performed miracles. But I came to you knowing your hearts. I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? So that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. So when he was in Corinth, he only preached Christ. Now, was it different when he was in Galatia? Was it different Was when he was in Thessalonica or Philippi? No, Paul wasn't like this, you know, like God that would just give different messages to different people. This was how he did ministry wherever he went. He proclaimed Jesus Christ. He proclaimed the gospel of his crucifixion. Why? So that everyone who heard him, their faith did not rest on man's wisdom, but on the power of God. Not only the apostles, not only Paul, but in the context of the pastoral epistles, I think we see that Con Logan is, is the gospel and gospel truths and not the scriptures. If you look at verse 15 of chapter 3, sacred writings, <coughs> ESV does a good job of translating it this way. They use the word writings because in the Greek word is grammata. In verse 16, it's all scripture. The Greek word is graphe. In chapter 4, verse 2, the word used is logon. A different word is used. Same as chapter 2, 
verse 8 through 10, it's the Word of God. Chapter 2, verse 15 of the same book, the Word of Truth. And he says, um, I mean, turn to chapter, two chapters previous, chapter 1, verse 11. He says, uh, This grace has been manifested to us to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher. God appointed Apostle Paul as a preacher of the gospel, and he appoints Timothy, and he appoints all future preachers to proclaim the gospel. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, I'm good with this, but does anybody else agree with you, Pastor James? And, you know, me too. If, if I was the only one saying this, I might have edited this out. But this is what Gordon Fee's commentary says on this very verse in chapter 4, verse 2. He said, There has been considerable debate as to what the, quote, Word of God means. Many see it as referring to the words of the Old Testament. However, Paul does not use the term Word of God to refer to the Old Testament as an objective, inscripturated reality. In the pastoral epistles, Gordon Fee says, the Word of God refers to the gospel message. New American Commentary says, many American evangelicals use the term the Word of God as a reference to the words of Scripture. In the pastoral epistles, the term the Word, Word of God, Word of Truth, is a reference to the gospel. In the following passages, this is the normal meaning of the term. And he cites many times in the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, where this is used. The term gospel has a wider reference than a mere explanation of the plan of salvation. It refers to the message of salvation along with the truths and moral demands that accompany it and support it. So when Paul says the word, he's talking about the gospel and gospel truths. I'll conclude with this implication here. This was one of the main questions that we wrestled with in leadership after we discovered the gospel for the Christian life. How does this affect our preaching? Especially for Dan and I, in our, with our training, we were taught to preach the authorial intent, to preach passages and explicate, explain the meaning of its passage. Don't say less than what the passage says and don't say more than what the passage says. Just explain the text. That was our training. So for, for me, and Dan as well, many sermons were just imperatives, just uh, to-be sermons, sermons on what not to do and what to do. And after many years, the result was our hearts were dulled, became hardened, and were burning out. I think this is why, I didn't know this at, at the time, why I, I went back to the Gospels so often in my preaching ministry. I spent, I think, five, six years preaching Matthew, and then went to First Timothy. After preaching to the First Timothy for two years, my heart couldn't handle it. I, I wanted to be with Christ. I wanted to be with grace and, and, and the Lord. So I went back to the Gospel of John. We spent four or five years in the Gospel of John. Some people were kind of curious. James, you have... 64 other books. You just preached from Matthew. You spent two years on 1 Timothy. Why are you going to John? Let's study Corinthians. Let's study Romans. Let's study Revelation. Right? Let's study, I don't know, Song of Solomon. I don't know, something. But why the gospel? But for me, my heart couldn't handle all these imperatives, all these commands. Because I was either miserable with my failures, how far I fell short of God's commands, or boasting of when I, when I did well. Um, and now I know why, why I did that and we did that as a church. Brian Chappelle has a great book called Christ-Centered Preaching, 
Redeeming Expository Preaching. That's the subtitle. And um, he calls such expositional messages that are not centered on Jesus Christ as sub-Christian messages. Messages on procrastination, contentment, parenting, decision-making, marriage, dating, and courtship, where we exposit passages that deal with these issues, but Jesus Jesus Christ is not present. This is a sub-Christian message. Let me just read to you what he said. A message that merely advocates morality and compassion remains sub-Christian, even if the preacher can prove that the Bible demands such behaviors by ignoring the sinfulness of man that makes even our best works tainted before God and by neglecting the grace of God that makes obedience possible and acceptable, such messages subvert the Christian message. Christian preachers often do not recognize the impact of their words because they are simply recounting a behavior clearly specified in the text in front of them, but a message that even inadvertently teaches others that their works win God's acceptance inevitably leads people away from the gospel. A textually accurate discussion of biblical commands does not guarantee Christian orthodoxy, exhortations for moral behavior, apart from the work of the Savior, degenerate into mere Phariseeism. Even if the preachers advocate the actions with biblical evidence and good intent, spirituality based on personal conduct cannot escape its human-centered orbit though it aspires to life, one to, to live one to divine heights. J. Adams explains it as well. He said, if you preach a sermon that will be acceptable to, a, to the member of a Jewish synagogue or to a Unitarian congregation, there is something radically wrong with it. Preaching, when truly Christian, is distinctive. And what makes it distinctive is the all-pervading presence of a saving and sanctifying Christ. He says, Jesus Christ must be at the heart of every sermon you preach. That is just as true of edificational preaching as it is of evangelistic preaching Edificational preaching must always be evangelical, meaning gospel-centered. That is what makes it moral rather than moralistic. That is what makes it Christian rather than Jewish or Islam or Unitarian. By evangelical, he continues, I mean that the import of Christ's death and resurrection is at the center of you must not exhort your congregation to do whatever the Bible requires of them as though they could fulfill these requirements on their own, but only as a consequence of the saving power of the cross and the indwelling, sanctifying power and presence of Christ through the persons of the Holy Spirit. All edificational preaching to be Christian must fully take into consideration God's grace in salvation and sanctification. Do you understand what I, what, what I am saying, what Paul is saying? Every sermon must be centered on Jesus Christ. Because without it, it is sub-Christian. It, it degenerates into a moralistic teaching that calls people into either legalism, if you're disciplined, and if you're undisciplined, you lose heart. You're provoked into rebellion. There are so many Christians who I think have been provoked to sin in a way because they've been so hammered by legalism in the church. That is why every sermon must be centered on the cross intentionally. Brian Chappelle said this, and I agree. No message is more damaging to true faith than sermons that are not centered on the cross. Now, what about authorial content, context? Authorial intent, excuse me. What about the 
author's intended meaning. Yes, we need to be mindful of the author's intended meaning. But two things to keep in mind. First is the arc of the Bible. That all of Scripture has one redemptive plan, one message that it is proclaiming. And that message is salvation through Christ. So wherever you find yourself in the Bible, the overarching message is always salvation through Christ, fixed on Christ. Either what He will do, what we cannot do because of our sins, what He has done, what He will do, and what He promises. Every text fits into this redemptive arc that is found throughout the Scriptures. Secondly, although there is the human element and the authorial intent, as we just studied last week, all Scripture is breathed out by God. The ultimate author of the Holy Scriptures is the Holy Spirit. And what is the work of the Holy Spirit? What is in the heart of the Holy Spirit? What is His uh, purpose in inspiring these texts and in dwelling in us? John 16, the Holy Spirit was sent to us so that He might glorify Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer in his book, Keep in Step with the Holy Spirit, compares the Spirit's work with that of a floodlight. A floodlight aims to illumine whatever it is directed toward. When floodlighting is well done, you cannot even see the floodlight. You are not supposed to even notice where the light is coming from. In the same way, the Spirit is shining on Jesus Christ. The Spirit points men and women to behold the glory of the cross. And His writing, His scriptures, have the same intent as well. This is Paul's charge to Timothy. And this is Paul's charge to us. Preach the message of the scriptures. Preach the gospel for which he was appointed a preacher. Preach the gospel for which he is suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Preach the gospel which will snatch people from the fire. Martin Luther said, the message of the gospel is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Back to the famine illustration from the beginning. I think this is why so many of us are so weak. Um, we are like, um, kind of get your attention back here a little, little bit with this. Tom Hanks in that movie, Castaway. You know, he goes out from that island. He's all alone in that raft. And I thought to myself, it's a boring movie, right? <laughs> it's so long. Is he going to die or live? Let's end already. My second thought was, that's the worst way to die. Dying of thirst in the middle of the ocean. You're surrounded by water. You can't drink it. You're dying of thirst. That's the most hor horrible, agonizing way to die. I think many Christians are experiencing that very same thing. The law of God does not nourish the soul. Though the law of God doesn't heal, doesn't inspire, doesn't affect, doesn't, doesn't nourish, feed, nurture, soul of Christians. The law of God, it exposes, convicts, and leads us to Christ. But if all we do is listen to legal preaching, right? Legal preaching, where it's imperatives, convictions, hard sermons, and we're not being taught the gospel, explained the gospel, we're not being fed Jesus Christ, then we are slowly slowly dying this horrible death where we're thirsty and yet we can't drink because we're surrounded by salty water which is the law and we don't have Christ. 
This is what Paul does not want to do. He wants to save the lost, save the elect. He wants to sanctify Christians. And he knows that the, go- the gospel is the only way. Therefore, to his very end, he preached the gospel. He commissions Timothy to his very end to preach the gospel. And that is my resolve, and that is the resolve of the leadership of our church. We've made a fundamental shift in our preaching ministry. How are we to understand it? The best way I can coin it is gospel-centered exposition. We are still going to expose the scripture. I'm still going to try to pronounce Greek words to you, right? And Hebrew words as well if you do Old Testament. I'm still going to study syntax and grammar, lexical studies. I'm still going to cross-reference. But the center is not the law. The center will be Christ. At every point, we'll preach preach the word with Christ at the center of it. Lord, we, Lord, we uh, don't have the words to, I don't have the words to pray. As I consider so many times, I, I miss the point of Holy Spirit-inspired passages that were directing us to Christ. Instead, I was directing my heart to myself and directing the listeners to themselves instead of running to Christ. Now that we know, Lord, as desperate people who hunger and thirst for your righteousness, we run to you, Lord, with all our might given to us by grace. We run to you knowing that you accept us, you you hug us and repeatedly kiss us and put a ring on our hand and a purple robe on our, our backs and to welcome us into your family so that we might have a feast and be fully nourished as children of God. Lord, may we, may we know that this is not a, a one-time event, but every moment, every hour, every morning, every day, we would run to the cross hungering for you alone can give and satisfy our soul. Thank you for the gospel given to us in the scriptures. From this point on, may your church be built up by it so that you might alone receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray.